Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we'll hear from black entrepreneurs about the struggles they have faced finding funding in Missouri and how they managed to overcome some of the hurdles in their path. Then we will learn why there are so few black-owned medical marijuana businesses in Missouri. My name is DC Benincasa, and I am here with my co-host, Ian Laird. How has the last week treated you? Hey, DC. It has been a pretty good week. Got to visit Chicago for the first time and see a friend's hometown, which is always fun. How about you? Mine was pretty great, too. Turns out I'm actually heading to Chicago this weekend for a Chicago Blackhawks game. What was your favorite part of Chicago when you visited? Well, there was a lot that comes to mind, but I will say I'm a pretty big foodie. So I had to get the classic Chicago one-two punch of Portillo's and a deep dish pizza, and I gotta say, I think I'm a pretty big fan of both. Wow, you're making me hungry just thinking about those. Hopefully I'll get the chance to try some of that this weekend. Let's take our mind off food for a little bit until we can wrap up and get something to eat. Sounds good. What's the first headline that you've got? First, the developing story that shook the international community. Early Thursday, Russia launched an invasion of Ukraine. The move was widely condemned by other countries, and markets were quick to see the effects. Oil prices across the world increased. By Thursday morning, the price for a barrel of Brent crude oil, the global benchmark, had jumped 8.5%, surpassing $100 for the first time since 2014. In news closer to home, a federal lawsuit alleges the Missouri Department of Social Services call center for a food assistance program is dysfunctional. Multiple applicants for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program have reported wait times over four hours, while others never connected with a service representative. When applicants can't reach a rep, their applications are rejected. The lawsuit announced this week also claims that the call center isn't accessible enough to the public. Less than a third of 141 resource centers listed on the department's website are open five days a week, according to the lawsuit. Chesterfield-based Bungie has announced an agreement to a partnership with Chevron to launch a joint venture exploring the possible use of soybeans as a low-carbon, renewable fuel. As part of the agreement, Chevron is investing $600 million into two Bungie facilities with the hopes of doubling each facility's production. Bungie will continue to oversee operations at each plant. For the agribusiness, the move provides a viable route for expansion, while Chevron believes this can help the company reach its target of producing 100,000 barrels of renewable diesel and aviation fuel by 2030. Sticking with energy, Ameren is following through with its pledge to transition to clean energy. The St. Louis-based utility announced plans this week to acquire its largest ever solar farm. Its largest plant right now produces 6 megawatts, but it will begin operation of a 150-megawatt facility in southern Illinois within two years. The announcement comes after the utility's 2020 pledge to reach net-zero carbon emissions by 2050 through investing billions in renewables and retiring its coal plants. The utility hopes that the southern Illinois solar farm will begin operating in the next two years, according to a press release. For our first story, we would like to welcome fellow Missouri Business Alert reporter, Emily Hood. Emily, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited to unpack the discussion I had. Me too. Would you like to briefly explain the panel that you hosted? Yes. So I sat down with four black representatives of the entrepreneurial community here in Missouri. 
And who are the members of the panel? There was Brandon Calloway, the CEO and co-founder of Generating Income for Tomorrow, or GIFT. They distribute grants to historically disadvantaged black communities in the Kansas City area. Next was Lene Robinson, co-founder of Bliss Books and Wine. Third was Todd Dillard, who is the project director of the Missouri Minority Business Development Agency, a local wing of the Federal Department of Commerce that helps businesses statewide access opportunities on a national and international level. And lastly was Sophie Sect, the founder of Expedition Sub-Sahara, which produces handmade goods with Senegalese origins. So a pretty diverse mix of panelists. What was discussed with these entrepreneurial leaders? I wanted to reflect on how the last two years had affected businesses, and particularly black businesses, with the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, and the heightened social awareness that those two incidents seemed to bring to a lot of people and communities. While we saw a large surge in support for black businesses in the summer of 2020, I wanted to check back in and see how the landscape has changed this year. So let's start with the pandemic, since that might be the easiest thing to talk about. How did COVID affect the way some of the panelists operated? There was a wide range of immediate effects of the pandemic. GIFT wasn't actually started until 2020, and Callaway said it wasn't founded to address the impacts of the pandemic, but was rather to address the generations of racial inequality that have led to the current state of Kansas City's business scene. For Robinson and Sect, they were forced to pivot pretty quickly to online formats in order to sustain their business. And both said that allowed them to foster a sense of community with customers as they tried to survive the initial waves of the pandemic. Gilliard said that because his agency works with larger entities, there were some companies that were actually pretty well prepared for the start of the pandemic, and it wasn't until later that he really saw a shift. And were those changes indicative of larger shifts within the Black community for entrepreneurs during the pandemic? Somewhat. The idea of businesses pivoting and people getting creative is in line with a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research. It found that most businesses started at the beginning of the pandemic were concentrated in Black neighborhoods. On the other hand, a Kauffman Foundation report showed that 41% of Black-owned businesses have shut down since the start of the pandemic. So while there was a lot of growth, we also have seen many businesses struggle. Did any of the panelists have an explanation behind both of those trends? Callaway attributed a lot of the growth to the fact that Black people have constantly faced adversity in this country, which has forced them to often think on survivalist terms. And so there were a lot of really innovative Uh, businesses we have seen in the community that are actually growing really quickly uh, and are are doing doing really well um, because they had to figure out a way to live during COVID. Uh, And and so, you know, uh, Black, Black people are not new to adversity. When a lot of Black individuals started losing their jobs, uh, because they, they may not have had a job where, where they were able to work from home. Uh, and instead of sitting there and, you know, twiddling their thumbs, trying to figure out what, what happened, beginning to make those pivots and, and, and looking around them and, uh, and, and saw the surge in innovation of, you know, what is it that, that I can do uh, right now? That uh, mentality and, and, and culture is one of the driving things that, that led to uh, the growth of, of, of a lot of new Black businesses. Uh, just out of pure necessity. That makes sense. What about the second part with Black businesses struggling to stay open? From what the panelists said, that comes down to a few things. For a lot of Black businesses, it's harder to access lines of credit through a bank, which makes starting a business or writing out a rough patch difficult. 
There are also difficulties with trying to start businesses in historically disempowered areas because of the gaps that then arise in things like education and investment. It decreases their economic viability, as Callaway put it. That difficulty accessing funding has been a big issue many black businesses have faced, right? Were either of the two entrepreneurs you talked to, Robinson or Sec, able to talk through their experience? Yeah, Sec actually talked a lot on this issue, and I'll leave it to her to explain what the experience for most black entrepreneurs is like. There is no generational wealth when it comes to the African-American community in the United States. It's impossible considering that 200 years ago, you know, Black people were slaves in this country. You know, like it's just absolutely impossible. So there is no, and when I say generational wealth, I don't mean my father had millions of dollars. It's my father was able to put a fence on this house and we had a dog and we could eat, right? And then my best friend's father had the same thing. So then when I want to start a business, I might go to my best friend who probably has the same amount of money as me and say, hey, would you like to have a tiny percent of this buzz of this business? It's just being able to pull from your community, pull from your network. Every community talks to each other, right? If you go to a bank, here's what you might say. Here's what you might do. There's an education on that level that a a large portion of the Black community also does not have, right? Of here's here are the steps that could get you what you want, right? I know that we ourselves have a very hard time with that. And now that we're at a place where we really do have to think about outside funding because it's harder, you know, the the larger the business, the harder it is to self-fund, right? So it is just hard hard to start a business as a black person in this country it is hard to grow it is even harder to grow a business as a black person in this country because there's so much red line there's so many things that you so many hurdles that you have to keep jumping over and jumping over and jumping over an important conversation to have of course about increasing access another frequently discussed topic during the pandemic was the buy black movement in the wake of george floyd's murder what did the panelists have to say about that You're right. There was a lot of attention drawn to this in the immediate aftermath of his murder and through the summer of 2020. However, the panelists agreed that the movement hasn't necessarily been sustained. While there was an initial uptick in a lot of businesses, some of that has waned as time has dragged on, and some of the support has become untenable. Robinson said her business saw some of the most growth because of the interest in books on racial equality that came out of the movement. There was a high demand for all of these books about race and how to be anti-racist. All of the booksellers across the country fighting for the same pool of books, which was very interesting because we went from not a lot of sales to everyone flooding the website and everyone trying to get um, the same goods. Wonderful problem to have, very stressful to go from nothing to, to everything, but we got the job done and it allowed for more conversations. Uh, conversations that we weren't having previously. So people were holding their own book discussions. They were reaching out to us to speak on panels and to provide workshops and and conferences and everything. But it's good that we started the conversations and that we're still having the conversations. The urgency has died down a lot, um, but it's still more than it was before. That's great to hear about the increased business and the impact that the movement had. We are also nearing the end of our time here, so thank you, Emily, for stopping by to join us and for hosting this important panel. No problem, and thank you again to all of the panelists that spoke with me. Really important discussion there from Emily. Some of those conversations are difficult to have, but as Lene Robinson said, they're discussions we need to be having. 
Yes, completely agree. There's a lot to unpack with those discussions, but I think the key things from a business perspective that were hit on, which we need to continue to monitor, are the increased accessibility to funding and being able to recognize the base issues like education gaps and community investment gaps that make things like funding accessibility such a large issue. And with that, we are heading to a break, but we will be back with more Business Brief. Are you feeling stuck in your entrepreneurship journey? The Columbia Entrepreneurship Alliance can help. Our new Ask Us Anything portal is a way for new and aspiring business owners to ask questions to our community's experts and experienced entrepreneurs. Ask any business-related question for free through video, audio, or text. Visit startmo.biz, that's startmo.biz, for more information. We look forward to helping you get started and thrive in your entrepreneurship journey. We now turn our attention to the boom of medical marijuana businesses. DC, just how much has the industry grown since voters approved legalizing medical marijuana in 2018? Missouri medical marijuana businesses began operating in October 2020, and sales have increased almost every month since. The state reported over $240 million in dispensary sales last month, and the Missouri Department of Social Services has approved over 185 dispensary licenses. It took a couple of years after medical marijuana was legalized for these businesses to get up and running, but it seems like things are going well for the industry now. But there are challenges, right? Well, the industry has almost no black-owned dispensaries. The first black-owned dispensary in the state didn't even open until this year. And the problem isn't exclusive to Missouri. Black people made up just over 4% of those involved at an ownership or stakeholder level in medical marijuana businesses nationally, according to a 2017 survey. I think it's important we talk a little more about the historical relationship between marijuana and the black community. In the 1960s, the federal government criminalized marijuana to put more black people in jail, and the strategy has led to higher rates of incarceration for black communities. So marijuana has led to the imprisonment of black people over time, and now it's a product that businesses can profit off of. But most of those dollars aren't going back to black communities because there are almost no black-owned medical marijuana businesses here in the state. Yep, exactly, Ian. Christian McDonald spoke with Eric Range of Minorities for Medical Marijuana, an organization that provides research, training, and advocacy to encourage diversity in the industry. Here's some of their conversation. So today I'm joined uh, by Mr. Uh, Eric uh, Range, and we would just uh, want to thank you for you know joining me. And uh, just to start off, what is Minorities for Medical Marijuana? We are a national 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization. We're the largest minority. Uh, nonprofit in the cannabis uh, industry. We have chapters around the entire country uh, and a couple international chapters as well, uh, one in Toronto, one in Jamaica, and one in the uh, UK as well. So why was uh, this organization formed? Uh, honestly, to be a voice uh, for communities of color, uh, communities that bore the, the brunt of the war on drugs and prohibition, um, you know, which were African-American and Hispanic communities, uh, those were the individuals who were arrested and locked up. And so as this industry was coming online and becoming legal, uh, even from a, a medical standpoint, uh, there was no one there to, for the most part, to be a voice for 
uh, those communities to make sure that we're considering how do they uh, get safe access to the industry. I always think it's pretty ironic um, that criminalizing marijuana has led to like mass incarceration for black people. Um, but now, you know, they're, they've been making it really difficult uh, since the legalization uh, for black people to make money off of it. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and again, that goes right back to the heart of why the organization exists. Uh, you know, unlike most industries, uh, the cannabis industry is born uh, from a place that was illegal. And, and so now that it is becoming legal to do so, um, unlike most industries, it does have an obligation uh, to right the wrongs and the harms that were caused during the time when it was illegal, yeah. when people who were, you know, growing this plant, uh, selling this plant, whether it be for recreational purposes or, you know, uh, medicinal purposes. Uh, there are a lot of people who were locked up. A lot of people lost their lives. And again, those were disproportionately from the uh, African-American and Hispanic communities. And so uh, this industry, like again, unlike others, has an obligation to create a space for uh, people who come from those same communities that, that really bore the brunt of the war on drugs. How does um, you guys' organization help those individuals uh, within the Black and Hispanic community get over the hurdle to be able to enter the medical marijuana uh, industry? Yeah, absolutely. It, it starts with education, uh, and we are the largest producer of content uh, for the minority co- community across the country. So we we put on several webinars every single month on a variety of different topics specific uh, to issues that we deal with in our communities, uh, the health conditions and and issues that we deal with in our communities and how cannabis can be a beneficial alternative treatment, um, you know, to the treatments that we we typically get from uh, big pharmaceutical. Um, But then we also do webinars on uh, you know, hemp farming, educating people about the different access points to get into the hemp industry, about, um, you know, money or, or about the the process to grow it, the different markets that you can potentially get into. Uh, just really, again, educating them about all aspects of the hemp industry so people can who, who want to go that route can, uh, as well as. You know, we've done boot camps for people who want to get into the the legal cannabis side of things. So adult use, uh, we've helped to establish, uh, get minority professionals teamed up with uh, applicants going after medical marijuana licenses. So you name it, we've done it. Uh, community forums uh, and, and uh, town hall meetings. Uh, we have tried to approach this from a, a very holistic standpoint mm-hmm. to make sure that, uh, you know, at every turn, uh, minorities are being considered in that conversation. What impact do you foresee minorities uh, for medical marijuana um, looking to have over the next few years? I have often said that we, um, you know, we built this organization uh, and are continuing to build this organization to be around for 20, 30 years. Um, even after the country goes legal at the federal level, um, we will we will have tons of work to do to uh, reform policies that are in place. That's going to happen over a period of years. Uh, and, and so we've built the organization to be a part of those discussions uh, for the foreseeable future. So I think the impact is going to be, uh, you know, extremely vast. I think the goal is 
to, to make sure that, uh, you know, black and brown communities have the information about this industry, about this plant, so that 20 years from now, we don't look up and find ourselves in a similar situation like we did after uh, the dot-com and, and computer, uh, um, you know, boom where we missed out on those opportunities because we, we didn't have the right knowledge base. Uh, we didn't have access to the information. Yeah, I just want to thank you for allowing me to talk to you and learn more about the, the business. You have a great day. All right, you too, brother. Take it easy. As we approach the conclusion of the podcast this week, it is time for our words of the week. Jumping right into it, what is your word of the week, DC? I chose hedge fund. Okay, I think I know where this is going. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you chose this, though? There are two stories on this, and both actually deal with Missouri news organizations. The first is about St. Louis broadcaster KSDK, which will now fall under control of a hedge fund. What's the story behind that acquisition? Standard General is the name of the hedge fund, and they are purchasing KSDK's parent company, Tegna, for $5.4 billion. And you said there was a second part to this, right? Yeah, so a while back, a hedge fund called Alden Global Capital tried to acquire Lee Enterprises, which is the owner of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Lee ended up turning down the offer, but now Alden is suing Lee for what it claims was a rigging of board elections to prevent a hostile takeover from Alden. Interesting. This has been a growing trend in the news industry, right? That's correct. Hedge funds have increasingly looked to siphon off publishing and media companies, A recent study showed that half of all newspapers are now controlled by hedge funds and other financial firms. What does this actually mean for news organizations and the people receiving their news from these outlets? Well, if you look at the history of a lot of these financial firms, there has been a trend of them removing many workers and downsizing a lot of the outlets. This then impacts the quality and quantity of coverage that they provide. I might be a bit biased given what I am currently doing, but this seems like an important trend to keep tabs on, especially as more and more newsrooms struggle to stay afloat. Agreed. What is your word of the week? I've chosen delays. A bit more vague than mine. What is the relation to Missouri for that this week? Missouri is currently experiencing delays in processing applications for Medicaid. Just how long are we talking about here? Well, the federal law says applications have to be processed in 45 days. Missouri is on average taking 70 days to process applications. That's well above the limit and even further from what most other states are averaging, which is usually less than a week. Wow, that's a pretty significant gap. What is causing this issue? The state says it is largely down to a shortage of workers, but other factors like the recent voter-approved expansion have led to an influx of applications. So is the expectation that things will die down soon and the wait times will be shortened? There's actually a worry that things could get worse because the state hasn't been allowed to remove people from Medicaid during the pandemic. But that restriction is set to be lifted soon, which means many people could find themselves needing to reapply for Medicaid. Interesting stuff as always. And before we end things, we will leave you with our closing thought. For this week, we will turn it back over to Sophie Seck for her thoughts on persevering and forming a business that aligns with what you want. 
little gets you a very long way. I started with $500, you know, and it was just me and that $500 turned into this and that and that. And it doesn't have to, Rome wasn't built in a day and literally nothing was built in a day. Like little by little, the bird builds her nest and it's okay to take your time and build your nest in the way that is sustainable and in a way that is respectful in a way that doesn't compromise your belief system or, or anything about you in a way that makes you happy and just keep building your nest because sooner it's like, you will get there and I think a lot of us all like stop at some point because it's just too hard and that's usually at the very very hardest that's usually where you break through well that just about wraps things up thank you to the m33 project for providing the music for this episode for my co-host Ian Laird assistant producers Kaylee Anagita and Christian McDonald and editors Kaylee Daruk, Jack Knowlton James Marshall and Wicker Perlis I'm DC Benincasa this has been Business Brief Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.